I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. It is episode 100 of R&D in the QC, and Larkin and I have special guests. First interview ever as Chief of Police, Johnny Jennings, as well as a special interview sit-down with former mayors Richard Vinroot and Harvey Gant. All right, welcome back. It's episode 100, and we are here with an amazing guest, someone newly sworn in, Chief Johnny Jennings, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much. And congratulations, sir. So we are about uh, less than an hour into your leading the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Um, we're glad to have you on. We're definitely going to have you back on the podcast for a, a longer interview another time, but I know you've, you've got a lot to do today, but we want to get you in here uh, so our listeners can be some of the first, I think this is the first interview maybe you've done as chief. Absolutely. You all are privileged. This is the first one I've gotten to, so. But we... Um, Obviously, there's no subject that's more top of mind, I think, in our community right now um, than policing, and I think on a couple of fronts. And so we'd love to get a quick take from you on what your administration's approach might be to the, the things that I think, is, as the chair of the Safe Communities Committee, I'm seeing as the two top focus areas, which is police community relations and transparency on, on one hand, and addressing and stemming a lot of the violent crime in our community on the other. Where, where do you see your administration taking uh, our city down those two paths. Yeah, I, I think this is very important that we uh, that we approach this in the right way. We've always kind of looked at arresting ourselves out of quality of life and crime issues uh, within the communities. And I think now we need to really start focusing more on uh, the community collaboration piece as well as uh, professional accountability. We also uh, uh, look at the crime management. I didn't want to call it crime fighting. Uh, I thought more uh, the, the more appropriate term would be the management of crime. And that's where we start looking at, are there things that we can do as far as discretionary arrest uh, that, that may not be necessary and take an officer two or three hours off the streets and put some of that focus more on the violent crime where we have a more direct approach on the quality of life within the communities. We get a lot of, uh, a lot of feedback from the community, obviously, but also from the, the rank and file of the, of the police officers, the men and women in uniform. And um, I, I was drawn to one of the four points in your blueprint that you talked about in your, in your speech today, um, the fourth one, which was, I think, employee health. Um, talk a little bit. Uh, I don't feel like we get enough airtime on that topic, and I was really pleased uh, to hear you bring it up as one of your top four items. Talk a little bit about where you believe police morale is today, um, why you think we've gotten to that point, and what you're planning on doing to, uh, to fix it. I, actually, I'm more pleased that you even brought it up for me to talk about. So uh, you're right. That's one thing that's lost uh, right now, and a lot of officers feel like they're on an island and they're alone in their duties. And, you know, I've, I've said all along, some of those same officers that have done some excellent work in our community and work with youth and, and, and trying to improve the, the quality of life in these communities are some of the same officers that were getting bricks and rocks and stuff thrown at them. So uh, morale 
we were, I think we're looking at different stages with the officers when all of that was going on, they were working 12 hour shifts, no days off. They, they, were, they were in it. They, they knew they had a job to do uh, and they were uh, right up in the front doing it. We couldn't send them home. You know, we wanted to give them a break and they, they wanted to be there. Uh, so at some point you start to come down from that and you start to have to deal with it emotionally. And when I talk about officer wellness, we have to develop certain ways that officers can have that outlet and remove the stigma away from dealing with the mental health side of what we do. Uh, so open it up and open those doors where they can talk about their feelings and give them resources to do that. And we have a great plan in place that, that's going to be fluid, that's going to open those doors up for the officers and, and, and take care of them mentally as well. Uh, Lark will have the next question, but just to add on to that, I, I think the thing that jumped out to me, which I thought was, um, was particularly savvy for the times we're in, was I've referred to it myself, meaning many of the same things you have as, as officer morale, but you use the words employee health, which I think humanizes it more. Yes. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a good tone to set. Yes, it, 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 I think employee health and basically more specifically employee wellness, it captures all of it. And when I say, when you hear me say employee wellness, that even goes to the idea that uh, we're going to make sure our officers are equipped uh, with to, to be able to serve the public, whether it's the equipment, the mental health aspect of it, the use of technology that, that, that we might have some ways that we can take away a lot of the negative contacts when you talk about mental uh, behavioral health issues that we're responding to, things like that. So, so yeah, we, uh, we want to look at the whole gamut and make sure that we, you know, anything that I say I want to do and any of my core values, it has to start with taking care of the officers because they're the ones that are going to put that forth. So I think one thing people will be watching for is how you are similar or how you are different in, in certain ways to your predecessor, Chief Kirk Putney, who as of now is former Chief uh, Kirk Putney. For me, my observation in, in knowing both of you to some degree professionally has been you seem to be more of an open book and that's not to say it's, it's better or worse, just you seem to be more of an open book as a person. I think a lot of people didn't feel like they had the opportunity uh, or that Kurt didn't really open himself up uh, for folks to get to know. And uh, at times I think that came across to people as him being kind of prickly or um, moody or whatever. And he, he joked about it, he embraced that persona to a degree. But um, I think that's one stylistic difference I've noticed in, in my experiences with y'all. What do you think others might be in terms of your vision for the department your strategies or even just your, your stylistic differences? I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head on some of that is that um, uh, it either, either styles doesn't mean that one's better than the other. And I, I always try to stress that. Uh, he gave me some excellent advice because, you know, he does have a firm voice uh, and he's, he can, you know, as you've seen, he's a stern individual. And uh, he's, uh, and I've always, I've even gone to him and said, you know, wow, I, I can't, I can't be at, at that level that you are with that because I see how effective his style has been. And his advice to me was, uh, you lead from, by who you are. You know, don't try to be somebody else or be like someone else. Who I am got me where I was and, and it's gotten me to this point at this point. So uh, you're right, I, I do I have a little softer approach. Um, uh, I think that that's always been successful for me and I, I've always been flattered by the fact that people tell me that 
uh, that they want to make me look good, so that, that they want to make my leadership uh, successful. And when I hear things like that, it tells me that I'm doing some of the right things. Let, let me ask this. It seems to be that over the last month, particularly, um, that with all the turbulence that's occurred from the protests to uh, officer morale to all those things, there's really been, it's really been people kind of gravitating towards the team side of this that they're representing. And it's very much, this is the only perspective. Yeah. Officer morale is the only perspective or more relevant to Charlotte, um, protests against what's going on in police departments is the only thing that matters. Even today, as we're evolving kind of beyond the, the protest to riots back to protests now to a little more calmness, and now that we're preparing to task force this city to death once again for the next couple of years, um, I still see the team sport at play. I still see that dynamic. And you and I went back and forth uh, just the other day of like, are we doing it with the police or are we doing it to the police? Yes. Um, what are you going to do? How are you going to thread that needle um, to actually to meet halfway, but not meet all the way. You know what I mean? Yeah. To, to maintain the rank and file belief that you're representing their best interest, yet show that olive branch, and then somebody has to accept it on the other side. How, how are you going to approach that? As the, the first time I heard that phrase was at a city council meeting where you actually said, we have to make sure we're doing stuff with the police and not to the police. And uh, hopefully you don't mind I've stolen that. Please do. Please do. <laughs> so I've used that term that, yeah, I mean, right now the police feel like there are some things that are lot, there are too many things being done to them and not with them. So uh, as you heard in my uh, speech downstairs earlier is that my door is going to be open. And until we get an understanding of each other of both sides, we're not going to get anywhere. If we continue, if there's headbutting going on, we're spinning our wheels. But if we open those doors and say, let's get an understanding of what you want as a community, how you want us to serve you as a, your police department, and then give them also an understanding of why we do some of the things that we do, uh, uh, I, th I really believe that's going to go a long way because right now it's, it's the us against them mentality is, is a scary place to be. And until we start saying, okay, we trust the police, they're going to do the right things, they're human. When they do something out of line of their policy or directives, uh, they're going to take care of that issue internally uh, or any other, whatever the system's going to be. But, but give the officers the due process just like we, we, we would anyone else as well. And let me ask you, Larkin. I mean, it would be unfair of me to just ask that because you really are the leader representative of the other contingent being the chair of the Public Community Safety uh, Committee. So... You know, how, how are you going to attempt, and I think you did a really good job the other day, not to blow smoke, but uh, how are you going to continue to thread that very fine needle of, of figuring out how to meet them halfway, not requiring them to come all the way? Well, I think I said in that committee meeting, it, it can't be just that the police tell us what their, their policy should be and what all their rules should be, and we just accept that as gospel. But it also can't be that we ignore the, the perspective and the experience that uh, people like Chief Jennings bring to the table to inform those conversations and inform those decisions. So we can't take what we're hearing from the community and just say, well, that's exactly what the game plan is going to be. We certainly can't take just what's being presented to us from our department and, and say, yeah, we're going to let them govern themselves and we're just going to assume that everything they're doing is right. I think 
we've got to take all of that in and factor it into and, and have some neutrality as elected officials in weighing that information and deciding what the answer is. And it's inevitably somewhere in between those two things. So I, I think it can't be done to the police. It has to be done with the police, but also don't think it can be done to the community. It has to be done with the community. So balancing that is, is never easy, but I think it's the only way we find any sort of suitable outcome. Well, good. Well, we know you got lots to do today. Um, glad to have a fellow Appalachian, which Ap- our, we need to teach our city manager to say yes. properly, uh, Appalachian State alum uh, in leadership with me. I, Member of the Hall of Fame, I am. Athletic Hall of Fame at Appalachian State as a football player. We'll get into, we need to find some old game film that we can. Uh, is it real? Uh, like, is it the old it the tiny film? In the leather helmets? The real, the real back in yeah. those days. We, <laughs> we thought the VCR and the VHS tape was technology back then. Mm. So, yeah, uh, we still have some of that out to floating around. Well, there. good to have a fellow Mountaineer around and good to have you on as the new chief. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. We look forward to working with you and. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thank, thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Well, we are back on the 100th episode of R&D in the QC, and we have got a very special treat today, another R&D in the QC, a former mayor uh who's from the Republican Party and a former mayor from the Democratic Party. And if podcasts had been around in the 80s and the 90s, I feel certain that Mayors Richard Venrut and and Mayor Harvey Gantt would have had a podcast together. Um, I don't know what the version of the podcast was back in the 90s. but It was AM AM radio, wasn't it, gentlemen? You guys could have had your own, like, dual AM radio show. (laughs) (laughs) I still wear a lot of the Republican commentary. (laughs) But anyhow, yeah, we are we are honored to have uh, these two men who, who not only both served on Charlotte City Council, uh, as Tark and I do now, but both served as mayor of the city of Charlotte and both ran for statewide office. So you guys have a perspective not only um, here in Charlotte, but of all of the dynamics, urban, rural, the, the mountains, the Piedmont, the coast, all the things that make North Carolina politics unique. Uh, and y'all are such a, a big part of the history of North Carolina politics. So we wanted to have you guys on as we reflect back on 100 episodes and on two and a half years in office uh, to talk about what your experiences were, how they're different than ours, and, and no, what better time than in a time where we're at the confluence of things like the coronavirus, the, the protests that are going on uh, around injustices, particularly in communities of color, uh, and where our conversation around the RNC is coming to a crescendo, to talk about what the things that you had to go through and the advice that you might offer us as we try to navigate what are very choppy waters right now. So I might just start with a basic question uh, for each of you. Um, and, I, and I think this would be a good start with uh, the spirit of episode 100 for Larkin and I, like you said, a Republican and a Democrat trying to work together in unchartered times and territories. Uh, but not only that, similar to you, you guys started at the same time in a sorts, that, the same way we did in 1983. Uh, Mr. Vinrit, you your first year on council, I believe, and yeah. three, uh, Mr. Gant, your first year as mayor serving. So you guys kind of both also started a chapter at the same time, similar to Larkin and I. Um, just any reflections or thoughts on that? Defer to Harvey. Uh, he's the first. Well, he was <clears throat> council member before he was mayor too. Thank you, Mayor. I um, I actually go back. I, I can't. 
I can't start at 1983. I have to start at 1975 when I was elected, when I was appointed to the city council in January of that year and later ended up running that fall uh, for city council. And I, you know, I recall that as being a very hopeful time uh, for me. Uh, um, city council was made up of seven people and, uh, and a mayor elected. John Belk was the mayor at that time. And uh, it was uh, made up of seven people elected at large. Uh, ostensibly, we were to hold ourselves out as council members, literally for all the people in the city. And uh, I felt good about that period, good about the people who appointed me to serve initially, and very good about my first campaigns. As a matter of fact, for about six of the seven campaigns I ran, uh, I felt good about the city and about the way we conducted politics. Um, I remember uh, the year I ran for mayor, and I remember Richard Dinrood and others who were aspiring to, to serve at that time and how we went all across the community. And it was a period of great, still great hope for the city. We were on the precipice of, of good things that were going to happen uh, from a standpoint of economic development, standpoint of developing the city itself. Uh, we're building a brand new arena in the Tybola Road section of Charlotte. And uh, people were just feeling positive. And that's not to say that we didn't have the usual problems of crime and uh, some of the, the, the continuing disparities uh, with affordable housing and poor people. And, uh, and I think, as I recall, the, the middle of the crack ep epidemic itself. But but we were always hopeful in Charlotte that we could solve these problems. We could, if we just got the right people around the table, we could get things done. Uh, and that was that was the kind of spirit that I that I felt when I when I won the office in '83 uh, as an African American in a city that had maybe 26 percent of the population was black. So uh, the the big thing for me was hope. And I'll tell you when you when you lose hope as a public servant, that your city or your constituency is not going to keep moving forward, then I think you're in trouble. When you ran for mayor in 1983, did the black community believe that a person of color could be elected mayor or was, was it a shock to a lot of folks in Charlotte that you were successful in that, in, in that endeavor? Larkin, I actually believe that people in 83 started to believe that there was a possibility. You will recall that I ran in the Democratic primary in 79. And um, that's when people had, had to really jump over the broom, so to speak, to believe that they even had a chance of winning. And we came within a less than a thousand votes of winning that primary. And I think if we, if we won the primary, we would have run the, won the, the race that fall, 1979. But it, it was the impetus, quite frankly, for, uh, for our campaign in 1983. Mayor Vinroot, um, a reaction to the message of the hopefulness that you heard there, and also as you hit the scene in 83, again, kind of in that same timeline, a little later after 
Harvey's council run, but right as he was going into mayor, what was it like? And what was it like as a, as a Republican at those times? I'm obviously. Oh, uh, I, I agree with virtually everything Harvey said. And I, I was, uh, you know, new to all of this. Uh, I didn't think, and I don't believe at the time I felt there was as much partisanship as there is now. And so I, I, I never, I, I saw Harvey when I saw him as a candidate and thought this guy's going to win. Uh, he's really talented. And I don't think race in my mind, and I'm a white, old white guy, entered my mind. Uh, but you think about it at the time in a city in the South with 25 or so percent of the population black electing an African-American mayor, that was unique. There were other cities doing it, but they were top heavy African-American. I also don't remember when we got there, and I give Harvey a lot of credit for this, that there was a great deal of partisanship or feeling about, I don't remember Harvey when you were first elected, whether it was a primarily Republican or Democratic council. I think it was primarily Democratic, maybe by one vote, but I don't remember any decisions where I thought we came down on party lives. And he's right. There was a great feeling of optimism. We were a city of what maybe a half million people had all kinds of big dreams like pro sports and you name it. And uh, it just seemed like every week something dramatic was happening in our city, a parade about something. It, it was a, it was a, it, they were good times in my mind. Now I know there were things, there were problems. We can both will, I suspect, talk about terrible things that happened while we were in office, but by and large, my feeling about our city and my re recollection is is all favorable. Is your is your memory that that bipartisanship came from the top down? I mean, did things seem more bipartisan to the country, and thereby politics at the local level was more bipartisan, or was it still partisan in, in Washington and in Raleigh, but you were immune to it locally? Well, in in uh, in Raleigh, it was a democratic. We all we ever had was democratic leadership, and we. Uh, we had had one Republican governor uh, for you know four-year period. That was the first since Reconstruction. So we all knew who ran Raleigh and who ran our state. Uh, and in our city, uh, I guess Harvey would be along in part of a long line of Democratic mayors and leadership. I guess we had had one Republican mayor for a two-year period shortly before Harvey, Ken Harris. But it was, uh, they owned this, and politically, they owned this city and this state. But, but you know what? I, I never, I recall my serving on the council and uh, prior to even being mayor, how important it was to develop a sense of collegiality there. And, and one of the things I've noted that I think is a little bit different today is clearly there's more partisanship. But there is, there is uh, a, a lot more in my opinion, less of an understanding of the form of government that we're operating in, council manager form of government. I, I hear of council members who get involved with and going around the city manager and doing different kinds of things and a lot of pushing for, for power. And I, I, I always recall the early days uh, on the council as mayor, I mean, as, as mayor of the city, and my need to uh, see if I could help set the agenda. And, and you set the agenda by trying to get 11 people, in this case, to, uh, to cooperate, or at least to hear their point of view. Uh, so I didn't have any reluctance about it. hearing what Richard Denroot cared about or uh, hearing uh, what some other Republican member, and I think there were 
Richard, I think there were four Republicans at that time, maybe seven Democrats. Uh, yeah, seven Democrats. No, five Republicans. I mean, that trash was a Republican. At that, point. that seems impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but it was easy. I mean, I never had any, any reluctance to talk. And, you know, somebody said nostalgia can be damning. But I never had any reluctance to approach then Councilmember Vinrood or uh, Gloria Fenning from District 7 or uh, any of the other council members, whether they were Republican or Democrat. In fact, uh, my friend Ron Leeper was probably further to the left than I was on a number of things, but we never had difficulty sitting down and talking about what we thought was the best thing or the best course that the council ought to follow. Um, it got a little different, but you know, it was even reflected in the mayor's races that I ran um, against Ed Peacock and Dave Berryhill, a little less so with Sue Myrick, uh, that you didn't see that much partisanship. We, we were either talking about issues that the city needed to solve, whether it was building a highway or a road or trying to figure out how much, how much land we're going to allow churches to have and the sizes and things of that nature in rezoning procedures. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a little bit different time, a little different. You I'll, add to that. I'll add to yeah. that. I, I, was, I was complimented by a uh, former uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals judge, Sam Irvin. He's the son of the Senator Sam Irvin, the father of, of several judges now uh, in our state courts saying to me that he watched television up in uh, his hometown of Morganton and he watched our city council meetings and how impressed he was with the decorum and the way we talked to each other and the way we treated each other. And he said, I just wish we would do that in my community. We don't, he said. He said, Charlotte is really unique in that regard. And then by contrast, I remember one of my law partners, Bob Bradshaw, who was a very staunch Republican, coming to my office one time uh, early in my ter term as a city council member and saying he had watched a uh, te televised city council meeting in Washington, D.C., and the decorum was just awful. The way those people talked to each other, he said, if we ever get to that point here, we're in real trouble. And I never in my mind thought we would get to that point here. I, I, I reflect on the way we treated each other, the way Harvey reflects on it. It's, and, and the way Judge Irvin reflected on it. Real quick, Mayor Gant, you mentioned the districts, and I know that those were implemented around uh, the time of y'all's service. I, I, we hear anecdotes, and, well, probably not anecdotes, probably just facts, that there were times in Charlotte's history where all of the city leadership might be from the same church or the same country club or the same street, and that you didn't have that Diversity my, of representation. My, 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 my church. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> it was Rich's and, church, yes. <laughs> and so, in, in a way, the districts assure that there is geographic representation, if nothing else, but likely lead to more diverse uh, city elected bodies. But do you think it also creates a sense that if you represent South Charlotte uh, versus the person who represents Northeast Charlotte, that you might be fighting for your your corner of town to the detriment of the city as a whole, or that you might not be as in tune to the issues of the city as a whole when you are elected by and obligated to represent uh, just one seventh of the city. 
Well, uh, that was one of the big arguments against district representation, is that we would become a city of elected officials who were only rather myopic, very more concerned about what was happening in their area, and listening only to the leaders from those areas, and sometimes to the detriment of other parts of the city. Uh, when Betty Chafin Rash and myself led the fight for district representation, one of the arguments we made, and based on experience that we did see, even at that time when we were an at-large council, was that a lot of people's voices were not being heard clearly enough. Uh, for years, Charlotte was guided and adhered to the, really to the lead of the business community. The mayors all came from being chairman of the Chamber of Commerce. So, and, and, and it served us well in a lot of ways. It served us well. But as we've got to be much more cosmopolitan uh, and more diverse, and, uh, and political voices wanted to be heard uh, in the black community and other places. Uh, we needed to have representation from East Charlotte, uh, not only just Southeast Charlotte. And that argument ultimately ended up in a referendum that won by a very slim margin. And Richard mentioned his law partner, Bob Bradshaw. A second time around on that, he and I deba debated all over the city uh, regarding right. whether or not district representation made sense. But there's always been, and of course that, that the, the, the system was confirmed, that's why we still have it today. But there is a tendency, you have to be careful, and I've seen it on councils going forward, that sometimes the interest of the larger city is, is skewed by by rather selfish opinions that certain council members might have for whether their district was being treated fairly or not. One of the reasons we didn't have all districts and that there are seven districts and four at large is that the four at large members would temper any partisanship or, or, uh, How's that working out for us? Ownership. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think there's merit to what he said about that. I think there was a fear and a feeling that the district representatives would be prisoners of their district. And if they ever got out of line in their district, they were in jeopardy of holding their seat. And that an at-large guy or gal would have more freedom to vote his or her conscience because we weren't you know, devoted to one part of town of the other. That was one of the arguments made, and I remember hearing Bob Bradshaw make it. I happen to think that Harvey's side was right about that, and that it has been a, a great thing for our community. I'll give you one example. We defeated, about the time all this was taking place, a, a citywide bond issue, I believe, for public education. And a lot of it was blamed on the fact that there were angry citizens in the community who didn't like the idea that five of the county commissioners of a five-member board were the members of Myers Park Presbyterian Church that had decided to put this bond before them. And what did they know about the needs of uh, the African-American community or the West Side or the other parts of the city? And that there was a Chamber of Commerce business movement in favor of Harvey's side and Betty Chafe and Rash's side that we ought to have a balance of districts and at large. And I think there's something, we, we, that's obviously the federal system in a way. I mean, we senators and congressmen. And I do think we've now seen, at least in the Congress, the fears of 
of, of uh, districts going in, into sort of isolation with whoever they represent, particularly with gerrymandering, that they even come out of one party or the other, an extreme part, portion thereof. And we always, I think, worried that you guys, two district council members, would not be big enough to see the needs of the, of the community or not be free enough to support the overall needs of the community if it had any detrimental effect on your district. I know I always felt in zoning uh, as an at-large, I was only an at-large council member, I think Harvey too. I always felt less uh, anxious about it than I, one of my district peers were when it was an, a, a rezoning in his or her community. I mean, I, I really was able to rise above it because they couldn't get me out of office by themselves. Man, uh, I will tell you that um, it's just awe inspiring. I'm sure I could speak for Larkin in this to literally hear you guys and literally we're sitting in the same seats we're in, in, in various phases and hear the, the debates you had that now the next generation down is experiencing it. And it makes me kind of sit back for a second and realize somewhere down the line, whatever the podcast version is uh, 15 or 20 years from now, perhaps someone will be doing that. And hopefully um, there is uh, uh, they have the kind of respect we have for you gentlemen to, uh, the, for well, us, which I, who knows what, what will happen. Well, ha thanks for saying that, but you may remember that Mayor Lyles invited me to speak to your new council members about four or five months ago. And I do remember several of the newly elected people not liking a lot of what I said. So you may be treated the same way by future councils that maybe you aren't so smarty after all. We're <laughs> know, my wife always told me I was not so smart after all, but um, <laughs> come on, other Richard. council come members on, were nicer to me. Let me speak to something I think sure. underlay some of the spirit of goodwill that we had had in that time. Let's just take the black community for one instance. We went from Fred Alexander being the only member of council for a number of years to my being the only member of council for a number of years. The only black to us member? Having, to us having three or four members of council. But beyond that, there was a hopefulness in the black community that even though racism continued to exist even back then, they saw clear signs that things were going to get better. Uh, you'll remember the 1971 Swan decision on, on Swan versus Mecklenburg schools, uh, where we integrated our school system broadly. It was a radical thing to do. Lots of people didn't like it. But here again, the community came together. And African Americans felt good in the long run that they were doing and seeing progress made. And I, I gotta believe that that affected the attitudes centered around hopefulness when we could get on the city council and, and talk about solving various kinds of issues. We were in that position of seeing nothing but growth in the city itself, growth in the business community, growth in, in, in race relations up to a point. And so it affected the attitudes when you tried to get things done. I suspect that there is not quite that kind of hopefulness, hopefulness today. And we can talk about that later at any time you want to. I, I, think, I think that affected the attitudes 
of, uh, of, of both communities in, in many good ways. Let, let's talk Things about started, in my opinion, to go downhill as we became more partisan and, and more willing to retreat into, into camps and silos that started not to listen, that started not to deal honestly with problems that are still there. You see, uh, I often tell people when I speak before them about my involvement in civil rights, as I reflect back on it, I say, you know, it was a lot easier. We wouldn't have said it then, but it was a lot easier to rid the South of uh, legal segregation uh, to, because the laws of the country uh, were definitely an antithesis to what the South was trying to do. We took down those laws we passed civil rights legislation in the middle 60s. And those gave us those feelings of hope. But we have learned over the years, over a generation of years, that you can do what you want with laws that may constrain public behavior, but you can't change hearts as easily. And racism doesn't die as easily. And a lot of people are coming to the realization on both sides, they're fearful and scared. And I think that, that uh, Tariq and Larkin, it gets reflected in an interesting kind of way, even in public policy making at your level. So what, so let, let's just, let's leave it right there for a second. You guys have been through both good and challenging times, obviously. And this is a different time. Larkin and I are sitting here as two members of, of an 11 person body and a mayor. And we're trying to figure out how to navigate today's situation, today's um, protests that are both peaceful and passionate and awe-inspiring, uh, but then also are transitioning and the baton is being handed off at night to some outside forces, to some others that just want to watch it burn. And we're sitting here and we've got a colleague on one side who, who, who rose to power from this exact situation in 2016. So he obviously has very passionate, heartfelt feelings on how this should be handled. And we're having real-time debates right now on should there be curfews or not? Should we disarm the police from chemical weapons and flashbangs or, um, and, and leave them exposed? Or is that, is that what is escalating all of the challenges? So, I mean, I, I'm asking an impossible question, which is what guidance, if you were sitting in our seats or watching us, would you give us as it relates to how do we navigate through this and just pray we're don't, we don't make it worse and cross our fingers and hope that we can make it better? I, I don't know the answer to that very profound question, but I do think a lot of leadership is resisting temptations uh, to join frays, uh, resisting temptations to get on television, resisting temptations to get a claim. Uh, Jim Martin, who's a friend of Harvey's and mine, became our governor, used to have a saying that a lot of those things that you get excited about saying you're part of are fool's gold and don't get attracted to something that's not real, not substance. Back to this, this city did a lot of things right. I mean, this is a city under Mayor Brookshire that didn't become Birmingham. Birmingham was burning and had police chiefs behaving like uh, the, the terrible cop that killed the man up in Minneapolis. Uh, we, we, were, we were a city that peacefully wouldn't do that. We're the city that, that, that desegregated our schools and busing where Boston was 
having race riots over busing. Uh, we're, a, we're a city that, uh, for a lot of faults, <laughs> has done an awful lot of things right and, and don't need to be embarrassed about how we got to where we are now. And I give example of my friend Harvey, again, a city with 25% African-American vote elects in the South, an African-American mayor. There, there's nothing to be ashamed of about how we've come out of this terrible part of America that started with slavery and ended with Reconstruction and all the horrors that went with it. I wish we could, wish we could rid ourselves of that terrible history, but we can't. But we, we need to, rem that's what I really want to say to you guys. You have a really rich history in this city of doing things pretty right. Um, to, to decide we want, we didn't, those people didn't decide, they didn't have to embrace district representation, but they decided it was the right thing to do and did it in a vote of this community. And we just need to be bigger than uh, what maybe gets on television easily and makes us a public figure overnight. I, 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 I'm really wary of that. Good leadership is, is mature, responsible, thoughtful leadership. And you're looking at one right there in Harvey Gantt. He had every reason to be bitter by what happened in his life. That's not how he grew up. He, he grew up to, to be uh, a gentle man and a, and a strong man, but a gentle man who didn't, uh, he, has, he has the reason to complain. A lot of people out there getting on television these days don't have any reason to complain. Harvey does and he doesn't. Well, uh, I'm, thank you, Richard. I've often wondered what, what it would have been like to have had you as a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> never you're, happened, buddy. Never, never going to happen. Never happened. You're, you're, you're truly a wonderful guy, but but I should tell you where Harvey Gantt is today. I'm I'm a little bit disappointed, uh, and I'm probably you're right. This city has done a huge number of things correctly. I think that is that you you guys are currently benefiting from a lot of years of things being done right as you serve as leaders, that is you, Tariq, and Larkin. But I guess I'm, I'm, I lost a little bit of hope just seeing what has occurred in the last six weeks, maybe two months now, what with the virus and what with just recently happened in Minneapolis. And let me tell you why I think I'm worried. I, people keep talking about let's, let's get back to normal, and I'm wondering what normal is, because what this, what COVID-19 said to us is normal, normalcy really didn't quite work as well as we thought it would work uh, for a lot of citizens in our community. And I think a lot of very intelligent, caring, thoughtful people are recognizing that today. And I could run a litany of things that we ought not go back to being normal on. Uh, the Floyd incident that's produced the violence out there speaks to the other piece of that, and it's like a virus also, in that, in that, it, that when I used to be hopeful about the laws that got taken down and off the books and new laws that talked about equality and, and uh, race relations, I actually thought we would, in 2020, not be talking about the kinds of things we're, we're caught up in right now. now this, this should have been behind us a long time ago. But maybe we didn't speak directly to it. Maybe we didn't do the kinds of things we need to do. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna 
pastor on this program uh, about how I feel and all of the fears and concerns I have as an African-American man. Uh, but I am going to say that what would give me more comfort is if there was a commitment by our very best in this community. And I don't mean just the clergy. And I don't mean just uh, the, the community leaders we've seen try to lead over the, over the years. Uh, but I mean business leaders and others who would say, what was done was wrong and we need to get at the heart of why these things keep occurring. And until we can get down to the root of the problem, we're not going to solve the problem. And I don't mean to suggest that you can solve it overnight. You can't solve it by getting on television for a two-minute clip. And you can't solve it by having one or two meetings. This is something we have to be intentional about and accept uh, uh, the fact that we've done some wrong things that need to be repaired. I, I was curious to watch how many white people would come forward in this effort to talk about what's going on and to talk about how we as a community can do it. The problems are, there are some short-term issues that we can deal with. And I think in Charlotte, we've done that. We, we're trying to do that. Uh, we're trying to be sensitive to the people that we put on the police force. We're trying to be sensitive about how the police serves the community. But we need to continue to double down on that particular effort. Everything from vetting the people who serve as our police officers in this community to uh, all the, the training efforts that need to be uh, put forward when we're in these crisis situations. But there are much longer term issues that go beyond, beyond just the police and, and their posture in the community. Mr. And I, I, I wanna see us deal with that. And I, and I wanna see more Richard, I want to see more white people talking about it rather than having Harvey Gantt go over and over what sounds like the same old, same old, same old. Uh, until people start to respect that and until we hear, uh, because there is a silence out there that is deafening. If you think about it, there is a silence, even in Charlotte, uh, that is deafening. Uh, until I see some people step forward and say, you know, this is wrong and we can do better than this. These are my but neighbors. I, I don't think anybody disagrees with how wrong things are and how wrong what happened in Minneapolis is. I think the problem that I see it is, is the, the destruction of, of, of support from good people by the behavior of a few. I mean, I, I don't understand that the destroying of businesses along Beatty's Ford Road as aiding this cause. It doesn't. It, it, it makes people like me and others saying, wait a minute, why would we destroy the very community that deserves to protest this terrible thing that happened in Minneapolis? Uh, where, where is the outrage over uh, black on black crime that is just off the charts in this city and every major city in America? Uh, that's gotta be uh, part of the cause as well as what terrible things happen to uh, people like the young man in Minneapolis. I mean, so it, it is, I don't know, there are a lot of people in the community who are sitting and watching all of this. And I, I was also impressed with 
the I saw in the paper this morning the number of white people in that crowd, appropriately so, protesting what we are all ashamed of that happened in another city to a, a to a black man by police officers. But our own uh, chief of police was quick to reprimand one of your own peers on city council for his own conduct, which I'm sure he thought was appropriate. But at least many of us watching wonder about, is that the thing to do when a police says, stop what you're doing and and leave? You you disobey the police and do what the heck you want because you're a city council member? I don't think so. Mr. Gant, let me- Richard, just a minute. Let me me respond to my my good friend. Richard, I think, the notion of property damage, I, I think it's almost universal across the spectrum. All responsible people, black and white, yeah. see this as, as, as diverting us from what the real problem is. And we all regret the property damage, the looting, and all the other stuff that goes on. And the reason I regret it, and a lot of people regret it, is it takes attention away from the real problem. Yeah. When you mention black and black crime, I have lots of, we have many debates about, why aren't we demonstrating in the streets when we see the amount of black on black crime that exists uh, in our communities? We have a lot of white on white crime too. Sure. But, 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 but we're not demonstrating, I've not met any leader, any citizen in all my years in the black community who does not abhor that kind of situation who does not grieve over black on black crime. But that's, that is a reflection of a much bigger problem. And when you see the instruments of authority, the, the people who represent authority in the community, killing African-American men, that is, a diff, that is a totally different issue, in my opinion. Both are crimes, but one is crime that gives some reflection that the narrative for people in authority, killing innocent people or people who are not armed, is okay. That cop that killed that man in Minneapolis thought it was okay for eight minutes or nine minutes to do what he was doing Mm -hmm. because he knew from history that he was never going to be prosecuted in any way, shape, or form. The narrative for him was, I can do this, and I can do this with impunity, because the history is, they're not gonna do anything to me. Right. Mr. Gant, let me, let me ask one follow-up here, because I have to, because I think this is at a crux of what we are being asked to try to help solve for it, and maybe this will be specific enough that both of you can give me some final guidance here. Um, I think you both nailed it on the head the thing that unites and unifies the nation, not even just Charlotte, the nation right now is most everybody sees that what happened in Minneapolis is wrong and violence and small businesses being impacted is wrong. There's a huge chasm between there where there's all kinds of disagreements, but I think everyone's pretty much saying, yeah, we, we are unified in that sense. One of the things you mentioned of more white people joining and speaking and, and, and all of those, those kind of aspects of it, I, I think I totally agree with you. I think being in a lot of the discussions that we're in every day, uncomfortable discussions, 
one of the main questions, and I think this is where we're having a little bit of challenges. Okay, so it's not enough to just show up to the table. You have to, they, you have to opine. You need to explain why it is you understand. And what I can't quite get around, and your opinion is going to mean so much to me on this, is it's a question of in Charlotte, the city of Charlotte, do you believe there is still systemic racism? And that's what they're asking me. That's what they're asking many folks. And I sit back and I say, well, I understand the impacts of redlining. I understand the, the, the uh, have a nice day racism that occurs still. I understand, um, you know, folks in hiring practices that hire people that look like them more than not. But it's a question of does, does systemic racism and whatever that definition means to you, is, is that the thing they're asking us to stand up and, and, and speak against? And I'm not sure if I fully have wrapped my mind around that definition. I mean, well, I'm the, I, first of all, I'm the wrong guy to ask. I'm an old white guy. I mean, I, I came to a law firm with, um, there were six white Duke educated lawyers and I'm a guy from North Carolina and they thought hiring me was diversity. So I, I come from a different place. <laughs> Uh, An awful lot of it has to do with who you are and where you are. I'm a a first-generation American whose father and his six brothers and my grandparents lived in a little house in the south side of Chicago, couldn't speak English. It's not as big as the room I'm in right now talking to you guys. So I'm well aware of the privilege that comes from being white in America. I'm well aware from what I've seen of how difficult it is. I've had friends of mine talk about driving while black and being stopped in a car. I read um, this morning in the Charlotte Observer about a football coach here in this state who played at Chapel Hill who talks about being stopped on the street as a kid and the impression it made on him. I have a law partner, Brandon Lofton, who's a state legislator who sent out a letter to supporters of which I'm one yesterday talking about the conversation he had with his two young African-American children about dealing with uh, police and others in authority and what you have to watch out for. But I'm a prisoner of my own experience, unfortunately. I will say this. I I was a a Boy Scout master for seven years before I ever got involved in politics over right off Beatty's Ford Road with about 20 African-American kids. And uh, I know the community and I know the people there and I have a sense of what it is Harvey is talking about. I have a sense of the feeling of can't we ever get out of this box that we're in? Can't we ever get a break uh, that I think does in fact exist? But I'm I'm simply ill-equipped at age 79 with my all-white life experience uh, to basically tell you what the solution is to this problem. I don't know. I mean, I, I just think we've got to be bigger than the color of our, our skin. I've always thought the color of our skin is just so damn irrelevant. Shouldn't it be? And why today, a hundred plus years after the war between the states ended, are we still at war on this subject? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm so sorry. Mayor Gant. Richard, first of all, Richard, I, I appreciate those thoughts but you have been working in lots of good ways, both in the public eye and privately to address that. And I think you're having a difficult time saying that there is systemic racism. There actually is. Uh, If I grew up in the mountain town that you grew up in and we had the same education and went through those same public schools, uh, 
uh, when it was time for us to do something, you knew and I knew that you had the better opportunity and you, you've admitted to that. What I, what, I, what I want my colleague, my friend to do is to say, yes, there is systemic racism and to use his considerable intellect, mind, to help us as a community try to move uh, in the right direction, as you have done privately. I remember the days when you worked in the Boy Scouts with, with churches on our side of town, and a lot of people admire you for those kinds of things. I'm just saying to, to uh, Tariq's question, is there systemic racism in Charlotte? And in the country, the answer is a resounding yes. But because that has been existing for so long, does not mean that we have to go the next 400 years doing it. I'm not sure we will survive as the democracy we have the, uh, and have the country we have today. But Mr. And, Mr. And, and, and it takes some leadership. There are several, and, and I'm directly trying to get to the crux of the call to action you made about more, I mean, I represent South Park and other areas like that. There are a lot of people that deeply feel and want to be part of this, but they, the, the, the counterpoint they might say is systemic racism, in their opinion, in Charlotte, not the nation, because we know it exists in the nation. Let me just say that. I know in different parts of the nation, it absolutely exists. But in Charlotte, they, uh, there's a sentiment that that may have been more of what you were the trailblazer on and the systemic racism now is, has lingering policy and program impacts and mantras around. But when you look at a city that has a black female mayor, a black police chief, a black fire chief, a black city manager, a black county uh, uh, chair, and, and the list goes on, the question I guess is systemic to me, how can it be systemic unless, unless those folks are in on it too? Uh, that's a very good question, Tariq. The answer to that is what you are seeing is the reflection of the growth in political power in the African-American community, period. And, and, and those whites who support that political power. But it also speaks to uh, the lack of potency even of that political power. Uh, it is not lost on me that the mayors of large cities across this country are African-American. It is not lost on me when I see police chiefs and those in authority are African-American. And in those very places, we still see, we still see the vestiges of racism practiced in such a way. And that's why it goes beyond that. We don't have that kind of diversity in economic or business interests in this city. I think you would agree with that. We don't have CEOs of, of major companies in this city who employ large numbers of people. That's just not happening. Uh, and, and, and maybe that's also a part of the problem, but it also may reflect systemic racism that may exist there. Uh, we've, been, we've, been, we've been working to make some changes. We tell our people, Let's get an education so they can go from Ivy League schools to community colleges. And many of them have good jobs, but a lot of them will tell you that the color of their skin affects their attitude and the attitude of those who
who, who they work with and for uh, that gives them some concern. Lest you wouldn't see the number of articles we're seeing recently about how people encounter different situations and feel that racism. So we need to work on that. And we need to work on, on there is a feeling, in my opinion, I've met a number of people who, when we got to eye-to-eye discussion, say, yes, when I grew up, my parents inferred in lots of ways that if your skin is black, you're inferior to us. I see you raise your eyebrows on that, but that's, that's a fact of life, Terry. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people have done that. Maybe not in Richard's home where he grew up, or yours, or Larkin's, but a lot of kids, uh, and I've seen it going into the schools, uh, a lot of kids get all kinds of messages and dog whistles that get to them that suggest there is something wrong. And how could they not? If, in fact, they see a large number of people who are at the bottom of the economic ladder and they just happen to be African-American, they either have got to be inferior or they, there's something they're not doing. Or as my, some of my conservative friends will say, Harvey, they didn't work as hard as you did. They weren't willing to put up with all the stuff you put up with. That's why they're there. But that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a racist approach and posture. Mayor Gant, uh, Mayor Venner, we are incredibly appreciative of y'all's time and, and even more appreciative of the, the things that you have done for this city. Both of y'all's fingerprints are all over this city and we, we stand on your shoulders um, and, and hope to live up to your legacies. Uh, as, as Mayor Gant has just put uh, quite a bow on, we have got challenges. Uh, every, every generation of leaders has challenges. Um, these certainly feel unprecedented, and I'm sure the challenges that you faced in your time in office felt unprecedented, but thank you both for all that you have done for the city, but, but not only that, how much you've continued to do since you both left office. Um, you're, you're two of my local heroes, and I know two of Tark's local heroes, and uh, it's just an honor to have you both on, and we are always open and, and welcoming of your advice as we try to navigate what our um, very, very choppy waters right now. I don't so, go back and rewatch a lot of our episodes, uh, but I will be rewatching this one several times because there's a lot uh, to bite off. Mayor, you had a final point? I do want to make a final point. I, Harvey, I bet he'll agree with me on this. I, I went off with, as mayor to uh, League of Cities meetings and account, the Conference of Mayors meetings. Went to a number of them over my period in City Hall. And I never came back from any of these great cities thinking I wish I lived there and not here. I always came back thinking, boy, am I lucky with whatever problems we have. I'm in Charlotte. We're going to resolve this. I'll bet you, and one of my concerns about being the 15th largest or whatever we are city in the country is I do not see among one through 14 a role model. Uh, If there's a city in America that can get this right, I think with you two guys and others leading it, we're in that city. I, I, I'm not. I'm not unlike Harvey in my hopefulness. Even today, I, I think this city will figure out how to show America how to deal with this. We think uh, insoluble problem. I just don't think so. If we can do what we did with public schools at one time, not now. If we can do what we did with political leadership without having to do so and electing someone like Harvey at one time. 
we can rise above uh, being white and supreme or whatever we are and solve this problem. Uh, if, if it can be solved, it can be solved in this city. I don't disagree with you, Richard. I don't disagree with you at all. Charlotte is a laboratory that could, could be yeah. the place to be, that can be an example to the rest of the nation. But it needs to recognize the problem is there and can be addressed, yeah. as we've addressed others in the last past generation. Good yes. luck and Godspeed. We have got a lot of work in front of us. And um, again, just incredibly grateful for your time. And uh, I know all of our, our listeners will be too. So thank you guys both uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.